following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning. Happy Easter. As our sister Tola's testimony really, I think, brought out well, um, to, be, to be a Christian is not to adopt a life philosophy or even a code of ethics that you think works for you. Um, but as she really pointed out, it's to enter into a relationship with a living God who has the power to transform us and who desires to speak into our lives and to guide us and direct us. And that's really the message of Easter, what this Resurrection Sunday is all about. Although it seems like Christmas seems to take center stage, particularly here in America, uh, Easter is arguably the most sacred day on the Christian calendar. Why? Because on this day, we profess that Jesus Christ, who died 2,000 years ago, nailed to a Roman cross, rose from the dead, just as he said he would. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to everything that we believe as the church. Without the resurrection, his death is nothing more than a romantic, heroic act of self-sacrifice. Without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. And so I want to explore the idea of resurrection by looking at another resurrection that took place in the Gospel of John in chapter 11, the resurrection of a man named Lazarus. Last week, if you were here this past Sunday, we were introduced to these two women, Martha and Mary, who lived in the town of Bethany, which was near the capital of Jerusalem. And although it doesn't mention it in Luke 10, the passage we looked at last week, Martha and Mary actually had a brother named Lazarus. And our story begins with these words in John 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he he whom you love is ill. Uh, To be able to summon Jesus, asking him to come because your brother is sick, demonstrates how close Martha and Mary were to Jesus. They weren't simply followers of Jesus. They were close friends of his. And what happens next actually is a bit confusing because in verses 4 to 7, we find, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Right after we're told how much Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, we're told that he decided to hang around for an extra two days and loiter wherever he was before heading to help this family. And the question immediately arises, well, if he really loved them, why didn't he leave right away? It seems a bit cold-hearted, doesn't it? Two of his closest friends beg him for help because their brother is dying. 
And he intentionally delays his trip two days before he goes to their aid. Well, what's going on here? Well, the reason why Jesus delayed is given in verse 4. Jesus knows that there is a greater purpose to this illness that needs to be fulfilled, that Lazarus will ultimately not die from this illness, but Jesus is going to use it as an opportunity to glorify himself, to reveal himself and his identity to the people who are going to witness this miracle. And because Jesus delays, Lazarus is now dead for four days already by the time that they arrive on the scene. Interestingly, the Jews at that time believed that when a person died, their soul hovered over the body for about three days, trying to re-enter the body. But what they also believed was that after three days, as the body now began to show overt signs of decomposition, the soul would finally leave and depart for good. And at that point, the Jews believed that that person was irreversibly dead. And so what many people believe is that Jesus wanted to wait until Lazarus was dead for four days so that when they witnessed this miracle of his resurrection, there would be absolutely no doubt in their minds that Lazarus was unequivocally, irrevocably dead at that time. And so the story goes on in verses 11 to 15. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Supernaturally, somehow, Jesus has the awareness that Lazarus has now died. And so he tells his disciples, okay, it's time to go to Bethany. But to show that this death was not permanent, he kind of uses a strange language. He says, Lazarus is sleeping. And you realize that the disciples have absolutely no clue what Jesus is talking about. Um, there are these comical exchanges that happen between Jesus and his disciples throughout the Gospels where you realize they don't really understand the deeper spiritual truths that Jesus is trying to say to them. So they're hearing Jesus and they're taking him literally and they say, oh, so... Lazarus is sleeping, so we're going to go there, and I guess we're going to wake him up. <laughs> and so finally, Jesus, frustrated, says, no, he's dead, okay? He's dead. So we're going to go to him, and something is going to happen there. Verses 17 to 22 of John 11, the story goes on. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Before we go on, I just want to say something a little on the side. I think there's often this misconception that Jesus only ministered to the most impoverished, the more, most destitute of Israelite society. But I think that's a misconception because when you really read the Gospels closely, what you realize is that Jesus had followers among every class in Israelite society. It's, there's a lot of clues here that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were actually rather wealthy people. In fact, to have this huge entourage of mourners show up from the capital city 
at their house, really it shows what a significant and important family they were in Jewish society. In the next chapter in John 12, we see that Mary is going to anoint Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And so these are just some of the indicators that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were actually very wealthy. They were a very wealthy family. According to custom, Martha should have waited for Jesus because mourners were to remain in the house and weep. And then the visitors were supposed to come to them and comfort them. But as we saw in Luke 10 last week, that's really not Martha's personality, is it? She's one of these CEO type A uh, type of people that it's about getting it done and taking charge. So she doesn't, when she receives news that Jesus is heading her way, she doesn't even wait for him to arrive. She actually goes out to him. And her first words to Jesus are pretty painful. She says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Martha sends word for her sister to come, Mary. And when Mary arrives, she says almost the exact same words to Jesus in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, two things are clear from what both Mary and Martha say to Jesus. First is this, that they have not a shadow of doubt that Jesus could have healed their brother if he only came earlier before they had died. I think they had witnessed enough miracles at the hand of this man that at this point in his life, There was no doubt that he was capable of the miraculous, that he was able to heal, and he bore the power of God in his life. But this made the second observation all that much more painful for them, confusing as to why he did not come sooner. There is this clear tone of disappointment, even betrayal directed at Jesus. Why did you take so long? Lord, I thought that you loved my brother. I thought you cared. Their disappointment and confusion has been echoed by countless Christians since the 2,000 years that this event took place. You could have done something, Jesus. So why didn't you? Do you even care about what I'm going through? This remains one of the great mysteries of life. Why does God allow me to suffer? Why does he seem to just sit by and watch and do nothing? Why doesn't he intervene and help us every time that we're in trouble and need a miracle? And in truth, I think in our limited understanding, I don't know if we will ever be able to fully answer this question, the side of heaven. But one thing is clear throughout the Bible. It is not because he doesn't care. When God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into our world to experience our suffering for himself, It's clear that whatever explanation we find for the problem of pain and suffering and evil, a cold and heartless God cannot be a part of that answer. Throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, we've seen this demonstrated over and over again, the limitless extent to which the Son of God would go to demonstrate His identification with our suffering. How much He would suffer on our behalf. And even here we see Jesus unashamed to show his emotions. In verses 34 to 36, it says, And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the entire Bible, find these words, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. 
Even as he is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, he is overcome with these emotions and he breaks down. This word for he wept is not shedding a few tears. It's actually a word that describes a deep groaning and sobbing and uncontrollable weeping that came out of the soul of Jesus Christ. I don't have all the answers for why God doesn't intervene more in our lives. I don't know why things happen the way they do in life. But one truth I am certain of, and it is this, that God is love. Of this, I'm certain. What good is it to believe in an all-powerful, all-controlling God if we don't also believe that He is good? That truth would not bring comfort. It would bring terror. But to trust in God means not only that I believe in His power, but also His love for me. That everything that He does in my life is out of love. And you know, Mary and Martha couldn't see that in that moment. They couldn't see how God wanted to use the death of his brother for his glory. And often I think it's true of our lives as well. We can't make sense of the tragedies that we endure. But just because we can't make sense out of them doesn't mean that God doesn't have a higher purpose for why he allows them in our life. And so God asks for us to trust him even if we don't fully understand what's going on. And you know the truth is this, without that trust, when we lose the anchor of that belief that he loves us and that he is good, everything becomes unraveled after that. As the psalmist confessed in Psalm 73 verses 21 to 22, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What the psalmist confesses is, when I lost that hope in you, when I stopped believing that you were good to me, I started living my life like an animal. I became like a a beast. Nothing made sense. And so I started living recklessly in my life. Back in 2004, when our family was getting ready to head off to do our work in Africa as missionaries, Uh, Our entire family had to get a whole slew of vaccinations to immunize ourselves from all the tropical diseases that we were at risk of contracting. And so prior to getting these shots, we gathered our family together. That time we had four kids. Judah was not born yet. And uh, we had a family conference to explain to our kids that every one of them were going to need to get a whole bunch of injections. Our three older kids joined Noel and Luke were old enough to grasp this, and so they sort of braced themselves for it. But our daughter, Bethany, our youngest at the time, was only two years old. And she just sat there in the meeting, just staring. She she, she had no clue. This is actually what she looked like at that time. So she had no clue what we're talking about, about malaria and yellow fever and typhoid fever and shots. And so when the time came to get the injection, she went into it blind. And it was actually Anissa's mom, Dr. Belverde, who gave her the bulk of the injection. So um, I still remember the look of betrayal and confusion on Bethany's face after the first shot. And she just stared at me (laughs) as I held her down and 
burst into these pathetic tears, crying because of the pain. And as a father, my heart broke. How could I explain to this little child that what we're doing is for her good, that she needs this? There's no way I can communicate that to her. And so she just had to endure it without understanding. You know, in truth, I think that gap of understanding is far greater between God and us. As the great prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can you, as finite beings, possibly think that you could fully grasp and understand my ways? the infinite God who has made everything. Jesus waited two days and allowed Lazarus to die, not in spite of his love for them, but as it says in this passage, because of his love for them. In other words, Jesus loved them enough to hurt them. He wanted them to experience the full power of this truth that he alone is the resurrection and the life. But in order to accomplish this, he needed to allow them to mourn a few more days and be utterly convinced that their brother was dead. And as we'll see in a moment, Jesus' interest in Mary and Martha are ultimately that they have faith in him as the Son of God. And in order to achieve this faith, he needed to wound them deeply. The greatest gifts that God desires in our lives are not to give us material things, but spiritual things. And the most precious gift that he could give of all is eternal life and the faith of his son, Jesus Christ. But in order for us to receive these gifts, sometimes there is a breaking process that must happen in our lives. Sometimes he must wound us in order to heal us and bring us to him and acknowledge that he alone as life. And it's in these moments of pain when we just don't understand what God is doing that what we need to cling to is the faith that God is love and that God is good. The story continues in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. In those days, tombs were like rooms carved into rock walls, covered by a circular stone that was rolled over it once the body was entombed. And Jesus tells the mourners to move away the stone and Martha's reaction is one of immediate horror. Why would you ask me to do such a thing? Why would you want to put me through something as unpleasant 
as asking me to smell the stench of my decaying brother's body. It's clear here that nobody, including Martha and Mary, have any grasp of what Jesus is about to do. But on his insistence, they obey him, and they remove the stone. And in one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible, with a loud shout, Jesus commands a corpse back to life. You can imagine the shock when Lazarus walks out of the tomb covered in linen strips like a mummy, looking dazed and confused, but with blood pumping now through his once dead heart. What I find so frustrating is that this is where the story ends. I have so many questions. How did Lazarus feel? What did he look and smell like? What were the first words out of his mouth? Did he have any memories of the four days where he was dead? Like that boy in that book, Heaven is for Real, you know? That's getting all the attention right now. Why does John leave us hanging like this? It's like he ended the story prematurely, before he got to the best parts, the most interesting part. Is it because John is such a poor storyteller? I don't think so. I think he ended it here where we were waiting for the most tantalizing details because the real message is not even found here. In fact, you could almost say the resurrection is a bit anticlimactic because the real climax actually happened earlier when Jesus was talking to Martha in verses 21 to 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It actually sounds in verse 22 like Martha is confessing that she believes that any moment Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But later when Jesus tells, her, tells them to remove the stone that's covering her body, the, the grave of her brother, she protests that the smell will be unbearable. She obviously is not anticipating a resurrection miracle. And so Jesus presses her further in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And in reply in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, like most other Jews, Martha had a vague belief in the afterlife. And in reply to Martha's words, Jesus makes the most important statement in the entire passage. In verse 25 to 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes what are known as these I am statements. And it's almost universally agreed by Bible scholars that what Jesus is actually doing when he makes these statements is he is identifying himself with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, who revealed himself to Moses when he said, My name is I Am. And it becomes one of his strongest claims to divinity that the God of the Old Testament and I are one. We're one and the same. And in this particular I am statement, he claims I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, he is challenging Martha to move from the abstract belief in a general afterlife to a personal faith in him as the Messiah who alone is able to provide her own resurrection if she would have faith in him when she dies. 
In other words, what Jesus is saying to Martha is don't just believe that there is a resurrection coming. You need to believe that I am the resurrection, that in me is life. And so he presses her further in verse 26. Do you believe this? To which Martha replies with one of the greatest expressions of faith found in the Gospels prior to his death and resurrection. In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. By raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was demonstrating his power over life and death. The resurrection of Lazarus was a foreshadowing of his own resurrection and the promises all of our resurrections one day if we believe in him. This is the central message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was sent to this earth to defeat our greatest enemy, which is death. Verses 32 to 33, we find this interesting comment made about Jesus and the way he acted that day. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That word there, deeply moved, as translated by, in this translation, which is the ESV, is actually very misleading. But in truth, almost every English translation of the Bible struggles with how to properly translate this word. Because in this translation, what it makes it sound like is that Jesus saw Mary and all the others crying for Lazarus. And when he saw them crying, he himself was swept with his sorrow. And so he became moved by that and began to cry himself. Now, we do know a little later on he does cry, but that's actually not what's going on here. In fact, this word deeply moved is most accurately translated, because this is the way it's translated everywhere else it occurs, as actually being irritated, and not just irritated, but enraged. I'm talking about anger, over-the-top anger. Uh, In fact, it's the same word that's used to describe the snorting noise that horses make when they're agitated. Betty hates it when I make noises when I'm speaking on the pulpit, so I probably shouldn't have done that. But um, you can see why the translators struggle to translate this. Because if you translate it as it actually means, then it doesn't make any sense. He sees Mary and Martha crying... And he becomes raging mad. It's just the, the two don't go together. It's nonsensical. But this is what many New Testament scholars believe. When it says that Jesus became enraged when he saw them crying, it wasn't that he was mad at them for crying. But what they believe was that Jesus was actually expressing rage, not at the mourners, but at death itself. In others, this is what they believe. That although he was God as a human being, he experienced firsthand the pain and suffering caused by death. And he witnessed this and he felt it in the very ones he loved. And he felt it in his own heart at the loss of a dear friend. And so it's this picture of Jesus, our champion, raging in anger against death itself knowing that this is the very purpose that he was sent to the earth, 
to defeat this final enemy of death. That's why when he finally arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, the exact same word is used again to describe the emotion that Jesus has when he sees the tomb in verse 38. Then Jesus, again, deeply moved or deeply enraged and filled with irritation and anger, came to the tomb. To Christ, death was an outrage. It is not the way things were supposed to be when he first created the universe. But because of sin, death is a reality that all of us must face. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he came to conquer this enemy once and for all. And by putting our trust in him and the work that he did on the cross, his promise is that you no longer have to fear this enemy. You no longer have to fear death, for I have defeated it. This is why the entirety of the Christian message hinges on this issue of his resurrection. Without his resurrection, our entire faith is meaningless. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 19, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also... Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. Hear the words of Paul. If there is no afterlife, if there is nothing to look forward to beyond the grave, what ridiculous lives we have lived. What pathetic lives we have lived. Listen, I know here at ICC we have a relatively younger congregation and that I'm guessing many of you don't dwell on thoughts of your own death very much or your own mortality. Uh, I think for a lot of you, you're feeling like you're just getting started in life and you're actually more worried and interested about what God is going to do for you in the present, how he's going to make your life better and help you to realize the dreams that you have for yourself and for your family. On the other hand, I know that there are some of you here who have already been touched by death who know the pain of losing loved ones and have had harrowing brushes with death yourself that may still, frankly, be ongoing. But I want to say this. Regardless of whichever group that you find yourself in this morning, the truth is that all of us are going to have to face death one day. And whether or not we're aware of it, I think the truth is that all of us are haunted by our own mortality a lot more than we're willing to admit. The fear of death drives us in many ways that we cannot fully understand. quote that I've shared with you before by the social scientist, Ernest Becker, who probably did the most significant work on this fear of death and the denial of death among human beings, wrote these words after years and years of researching this. What does it mean to be a self-conscious animal? The idea is ludicrous. If it is not monstrous, It means to know that one is food for worms. This is the terror. To have emerged from nothing. To have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression. And with all this yet to die, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with with a towering majesty And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly to rot and disappear forever. 
It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. Becker, he wasn't a Christian, but he recognized that there was something inside all of us, every human being, that longs for something transcendent, something eternal, to feel like my life counts for something, that there's a greater meaning than the fact that I'm just a bunch of random molecules put together without any purpose, that there is a story being written here in my life that matters. Because he says, without that hope, life is absurd. All of the striving, all of the fighting to try to make life meaningful. And he says, at the end of the day, when I die and I'm just worm food, what was it all about? What was the point in it? There's an absurdity to our existence without the belief that there is an afterlife. What was the point of my life? But this is precisely where the gospel meets our deepest need, giving us the courage to face our death and to find real meaning in our life because the Bible says there is a life to come. As Paul continues in Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 51 to 58, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see the connection that Paul is making between the confidence in the resurrection and our ability to remain steadfast and faithful in the life that we're living in the present? Without that connection, I don't think we can live faithfully. The promise is this, you can move forward. You can stand firm in the midst of all kinds of difficulties. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what you are going to ask to be endured, you can move forward because life has meaning. There is purpose. Everything that you are going through has a significance beyond this life. And it's all because of Jesus. And here's the truth. I worry that as the church in the 21st century, we've really lost this message. I think we have. Modern Christians, I don't think we talk about heaven very much. We don't dwell on that hope very much. And you know, in truth be told, as a result, I think we make a lot of false promises to people who are suffering. Telling them that God is going to deliver them from all of their problems, that if they only believe and follow Jesus, everything gets solved like magic. So we find people believing that, walking away disappointed, saying, God didn't pull through for me. The truth that the gospel really reveals is this, that he's going to ask us to endure all kinds of difficulties in this life. But the gospel also says that we never lose heart. 
we never end up in despair because we know that there is a glorious future that awaits us. C.S. Lewis said these words, Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the sufferings of earth. And no solution of the problem of pain which does not do so can be called a Christian one. We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We are afraid of the jeer about, quote, pie in the sky and of being told that we are trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, then Christianity is false. For this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. Lewis goes on in his book, The Problem of Pain, to reflect on this pursuit that every one of us has of all kinds of pleasures in life. Whether it's watching a sunset across the ocean horizon, snuggly up to a warm fireplace, the cup of coffee in your favorite book, riding your child on your shoulders as you walk through endless fields of green, or simply feeling the breeze blowing through your hair as you ride your bicycle on a warm summer day. Lewis asked this question, why are we constantly pursuing experiences like this? I suspect that even these images that I showed you just now evoke a certain emotion in you, a certain longing. And what Lewis goes on to say is, even as we pursue experiences like this, as enjoyable as they may be, as they may be why is it that at the same time, they never fully deliver on the promise of what we were hoping to receive out of them. They always have a way of sort of leaving us a little bit empty-handed, a little bit unsatisfied. The moment ended too quickly. Something went wrong. There is still a deeper longing that remains in me, at the core of my soul, unsatisfied. And that's why we never stop pursuing these experiences. That's why you don't just say, yeah, we took our life vacation in 2004. It was wonderful, so we're good to go. What causes the human heart to chase these pleasures day after day? What Lewis argues is this, that all of these experiences fall short of satisfying our deepest hungers because these hungers are actually pointing to a desire that this world can never satisfy. It's what he would argue is a desire for heaven. And he writes in his book, Mere Christianity, If I find in myself a desire which no experience of this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I just want to end this message with these words that come from the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. Taking it out of the message translation, 
by Eugene Peterson, and it says, And regarding the question, friends, that has come up about what happens to those already dead and buried, we don't want you in the dark any longer. First off, you must not carry on over them like people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave were the last word. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who died in Jesus. And then this, we can tell you with complete confidence, we have the Master's word on it, that when the Master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The Master himself will give the command, Archangel Thunder, God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. Then the rest of us who are still alive at that time will be caught up with them into the clouds to meet the Master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the Master. So reassure one another with these words. Let's pray. I worry that in our church today, we've lost the vocabulary of heaven. And as a result, there's so often such profound disappointment with God. Where were you, God, when I needed you? Where was your help when I was desperate? If you only came a little earlier, my brother could have lived. I don't dismiss lightly this problem of pain and evil. It's a very real one. But however we try to solve it, the solution cannot be that we worship a cold and heartless God. The pages of Scripture resound with the God who loves us, whose heart breaks at the pain that we suffer. God is going to ask us to go through some things in this life that are going to be incredibly painful. But it's not because he doesn't care. I don't have all the answers. And I'm not going to pretend that in a single 40-minute message I can solve the problem of pain. But one thing I can say with all the confidence of my heart, not only because the Bible tells me so, but because of what I've experienced in my own life, is that God is love, God is good. And whatever you're going to be asked to go through and endure in this life, pie in the sky as much as it may sound, there is an afterlife. There is a heaven. Heaven is for real. That is the bedrock promise of God to everyone who would put their faith in Him. That whatever life is going to dish out to you, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And know that there is a glorious future that awaits every one of us that puts our hope in him. Before your life is over, I'm sure you're going to bury many loved ones. I'm sure you're going to have to go through a lot of pain. But through it all, the promise of God is this, that he is going to be with us. And if we only put our trust in him and believe what he has done for us, we can know eternal life. We no longer have to fear death. Death has been defeated, and I can face the grave 
the smile on my face, knowing that Christ has conquered everything. If you don't know that faith, if you don't know Jesus in that way, could I invite you maybe even this day to take a step of faith and put your trust in him so that you too can know that peace, so that you too can know that hope that lies beyond this grave. Maybe for those of you who say that you believe in Jesus and yet know that there is this fear of death in your heart, maybe this is an invitation to you to put your trust in him. Say, God, whatever it is that I have to go through in this life, help me to be reminded this day that you have conquered the grave, you have defeated death, and in that has been won for me the greatest victory. Whatever it is that I have to go through in this life, I know that there is a glorious future where there will be no more tears, where I'll be united with those I have lost. And in you, I will have a hope that this world can never take away from me. Just pray that for a few minutes as we close out our service with some songs of worship today.